Have you ever faced opposition as a follower of Jesus? I sure do. And I can tell you that when it happens, my knee-jerk reaction is not Christ-like. My fleshly response would not line up with what we've been learning from the Sermon on the Mount. In truth, it seems the more I act like Jesus, the more I need help to keep acting like Jesus. I think when we really start to follow him, it's, follow him, it's kind of like the whole world along with the spiritual realm sort of makes the Bugs Bunny statement. Of course, you realize this means war. So if I follow Jesus, I will face opposition. And when I face opposition, that's when I get a chance to really follow Jesus. Because Jesus was always facing opposition. Knowing this, I need to get ready. If I want to be involved in expanding the kingdom of heaven on earth as a disciple of Jesus, I need to be ready to respond to opposition as Jesus did and as Jesus taught. How to do that is exactly what we will learn from our text today. For weeks now, we've been getting the picture, the picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And what does this heavenly kingdom modeled by Christ look like? I think the answer blossoms out of today's text, and it comes down to two words, unconditional love. To follow Jesus is to practice God's unconditional love toward other people, even as we live here in this sin-fallen, survival-oriented, even violent place. In other words, this is going to hurt. Just ask Jesus about that. Let's read our text. Jesus continues on that mountainside. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now let's simply walk through these words a little bit at a time. From verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. First, we need to understand what has happened in the community of faith at this point in history. As has been the case with most of what we've been discussing, this is not only a saying, but these words, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, are a direct quotation from the law of God as it had been recorded in books like Deuteronomy and Exodus. An eye for an eye is straight out of the Bible. Now, hopefully we're here on the Sunday when I explain the difference between the civil, ceremonial, and moral law. This law about an eye for an eye was written as a civil law 
which were to be enforced by magistrates or judges during the time when Israel was a theocratic nation left to govern her own affairs. And so here's the big point to remember right now. This law was never intended to be used in personal civilian life. This law about an eye for an eye was intended as a guideline for sentencing criminals. This law was to be used by local judges as they chose a punishment for those who had criminally harmed others. In truth, this law was given in order to make sure punishments were not excessive. To ensure that a person would not be put to death for stealing a cow, for instance. But by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders had taught the people to apply this law to personal life until it had become a justification for vengeance on demand. Jesus says this was never God's purpose. Here we have yet another example of bad hermeneutics from religious leaders infecting the entire culture. In other words, this was a teaching that had been accepted by the people even though it was based on a faulty interpretation of Scripture. Because you see, God had also said, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.18. And what about this law that I just read found in Leviticus? Is this one a civil law? No. Is this guidance for judges or for everyone? For everyone. This law in Leviticus about not seeking revenge and loving our neighbor is actually a moral law, which means it is intended for all times, not limited to the once theocratic government of Israel. In fact, this moral law, which at first glance seems to contradict the law about an eye for an eye, is something Jesus affirmed as the second greatest commandment of all. For the record, the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, appears in many other places and contexts in the Bible as well. So what were the people of God doing? They were setting aside this universal moral law in favor of a time and place specific civil law. They were applying a law designed to help judges pick a, a reasonable punishment to everyday life, even at the expense of ignoring a moral law designed to help them live like the people of God. If you've been attending and hearing the messages, are you starting to see a pattern? Once again, God's real purpose had been twisted and distorted, but enter Jesus and man's error finds correction. Oh, how we need the Lord to return and do this again. Jesus says, you have taken this law out of its legal context and made it an absolute for daily life, something God never intended. He says, this may have been the letter of the law of the court when you were a sovereign nation. But this is not what God wants from his children in daily life, nor was it ever. Jesus says, what God meant as a civil deterrent against crime, you have used as the justification to get even with anyone who hurts you in any way. He says, this is one more area where you have it completely wrong. This is not how my disciples are to be known. And the crazy thing is that we are still making this exact same error. 2,000 years after Jesus corrected it, some people still say, an eye for an eye, to justify revenge. Meanwhile, the whole of Scripture teaches against the idea of getting even throughout its pages. And the Son of God could not have been clearer that this was never God's intention for His people. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing how we can twist the Bible to our own ends? And to repeat the error ad infinitum until someone is willing to stand up and correct us. By the way, if you ever wondered about the purpose of preaching, 
This is a big part of it, as it says in 2 Timothy, to reprove and correct so that the people of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In our text, Jesus makes it pretty clear how we should respond when someone comes against us. He says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Wow, that's, um, that's not much of an ear tickler, is it? And as always, we need to look at this in context. The context is not about self-defense. I'll talk about that more later. But listen, this is about revenge. Even the original word for resist here is a legal term that had to do with repaying evil. But if you don't know that about the word, you can still see that Jesus is talking about not responding to evil with evil by looking at the context. He's talking about laying down your natural tendency to get even. Jesus is preaching against taking out vengeance. He's speaking against the eye for an eye philosophy. And he's saying, no, that methodology is not going to work for my disciples. Instead, you need to learn the power of no paybacks. You'll be a lot happier when you figure out that it won't fix your hurt to hurt someone back. Not even with passive aggression. It doesn't help anything to get revenge. It only makes matters worse, makes you feel worse. As a follower of Christ, you should be the one who actively seeks to end cycles of ungrace. You're called to be the one who responds to the pain with love instead of more pain. Jesus, the one who later prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. From the cross says, be like me. Take the high road and rather than reacting with what feels natural, follow me with grace and forgiveness and unconditional love. Well, let's think even a little bit deeper because I'm afraid that many of us can skim over this type of thing, assuming we do pretty well with it, when that may not be true. Don't we actually tend to operate by the default of an eye for an eye? At least to some degree. Don't most of us tend to do unto others as they have done unto us? And isn't that fair? I mean... How else do you avoid being someone's doormat? Aren't we enabling people if we don't make them sorry that they did us wrong? Think of a person who's really disappointed you or hurt you or, or let you down. How many ways have you tried to get back at that person? Now, wait a minute. Don't, don't, don't let yourself off the hook yet. Maybe you didn't come back the same way they came at you, but how many times have you torn down that person to others? Did you feel justified in making, making sure they know? <laughs> making that person out to be less of a person. Oh, they showed their true colors, you said. And what is it that you are doing as you say that? Aren't you kind of showing yours? Why did you feel justified in saying something mean about another person? Isn't it because they said something mean about you? An eye for an eye. Anyone else guilty or is it just me? If he talks about me behind my back, I'll talk about him behind his back. If he cuts me off in traffic, traffic I'll speed up and ride his bumper. If the place where I work fires me, I'll tell everyone not to do business there. If you're mean to me, I'll be mean to you. If you're critical of me, I'll find something to criticize about you. If my husband isn't there for me in the way I need him, I won't be there in the way he needs me. She yells at me, I'll yell right back. And I justified uh, didn't, didn't she start it? Wait a minute, I don't remember who started it. What, what if I started it? 
But Billy Joel said, we didn't start the fire. But it goes on and on. And he's right. So what if we can help put it out? At least in our own small sphere of influence. How do we put out the fire? Someone will need to practice the unconditional love of Christ. Jesus continues. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now again, this does not necessarily mean that if someone starts busting up your face with punches, uh, you should not defend yourself. This is simply not what Jesus said. And why the right cheek? Well, this clues us into the kind of strike being referenced. Jesus is referring to a backhanded slap, which was a common form of insult during the time of the Jews, during this time of Jesus. A right-handed person, think about it, would strike. You hit the right cheek when you do the backhanded slap, and that's what he had in mind. But that's why it's it's going to be a one-time deal. I mean, you don't just keep, you know, it's a one-time, one and done. And that's why it makes a powerful point to turn to them the other cheek. Because it is to show the aggressor immediately that you will not be responding in kind. It's a way to show surrender. An unwillingness to fight back. And I fully realize that is not how any of us want to respond to such a thing. This is like responding to a mean email with, thank you for this valuable input. People don't know what to do with that. How do I know? Most often, they're not going to hit you again at that point. And that means you've used the power of Christ within you to end that particular cycle of ungrace. To not allow it to escalate. This is really a choice that says, because of the love and forgiveness of Jesus in my life, I will not respond to an insult with an insult. And I think it really is true that most people are not going to keep hitting you if you don't hit back. Insert any number of proverbs here. You probably know the one that says, a gentle response diffuses aggression or turns away wrath. Even the Old South, the Backhanded slap was a known form of insult, and it, there, was, there was no intent to do physical damage or else the aggressor would have used his fist. And again, it was always a single slap. That said, the backhanded slap was certainly an emotionally painful way to insult someone. I already mentioned Bugs Bunny once today. I remember the episodes where someone would take a glove off and, and, and backslap Bugs in the face as an insult, and Bugs would always put a brick in his glove and then slap the other guy back, right? And, and then he would dump out the crumbs while the other guy was like half conscious. I love Bugs Bunny, but yeah, he wasn't exactly following the way of Jesus there. And what is Jesus really saying? Well, he's still talking about choosing not to respond in revenge and retaliation. He's not saying there's no place for self-defense. Jesus is not describing a situation where you would find yourself in real physical danger in this scene. Listen, you do not need to teach your children never to fight back if fighting back is truly necessary to protect themselves from harm. That is simply not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus did not say that there is never a time to defend ourselves or others from harm. 
But let's get back to what Jesus is saying here, and I'll sum it up like this. First, Jesus is saying that we should not take out revenge or retaliate in such a way as to get even. Okay, there again, there's a big difference between self-defense and going after someone and vengeance or by way of reaction. This we must not do. Second, Jesus is saying that when self-defense is not absolutely necessary because the attack is not seriously harmful, then we should use such a moment as an opportunity to show the power of unconditional love, a power we have through Christ who lives within us. Some of our best opportunities to represent Christ come to us as we face opposition. Don't miss your chance to do something powerfully unnatural as a spirit-filled believer. And listen to this too, especially if you're a tough guy. Doing what Jesus is saying to do here is not a passive or easy thing to do. This is something that takes incredible maturity and it takes courage. Why does it take courage? Why does it take guts? Because there are times when practicing this principle will invite further harm. Some people are that mean. I said usually they won't keep going with it, but some will. And you are taking that risk in turning the other cheek. But notice also that Jesus doesn't say, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, just stand there. He doesn't say, after the slap, you should cower down in fear and beg not to be hit again. No, he says, turn to him the other cheek also. I mentioned an insulting email or, or maybe think of something hurtful or embarrassing on social media, in which case turning the other cheek might be like thanking someone uh, for their suggestion, um, even though maybe false assumptions were made or even though it stung your pride or was insulting. Maybe sometimes it's like returning an insult with a compliment. Often that ends it. But in truth, sometimes turning the other cheek invites another email or another comment or even another slap in the face. That can happen sometimes. And right now my point is that this is more about being tough than it is about being passive. And it's more about doing something that advances the kingdom than it is about ending the struggle or always winding up with a better outcome. This is a way to turn your natural desire to retaliate into an opportunity to be like Jesus. See, this goes back to the meekness Jesus talked about earlier in his sermon. And all the stuff about blessing coming through persecution. And it's really a way of saying, okay, I'm right here if you want to say more. I'm right here if you've got another slap in you. I'm right here if you want to be used by God to make me more like Christ. <laughs> it takes a very big person to look at opposition that way. But when we do, it not only is spiritually powerful, but as an added bonus, it usually works to more quickly end the ugliness of the situation. By the way, Jesus, as usual, is actually quoting Scripture in what he says here from the book of Lamentations. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies, for no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Aha! 
And now you see what this really comes down to, which is what? This all comes down to faith. Can you see how this is so? If you believe the Bible and you're a child of God and Christ, then you believe God has your back. Not only did Jesus himself promise this several times, but here we have it from a much earlier prophet in Lamentations. No one is being struck or insulted by his enemy is abandoned by the Lord forever. The point is that rather than trying to get justice for yourself, you'd really rather have God handling it on your behalf. Why? Because he is much better at justice than you. And see, the thing is that generally speaking, if you retaliate by striking back in a similar manner, physically or emotionally, then you will miss out on experiencing what God can do when you leave it to him. Ultimately, this is about trusting that God is enough. Isaiah 52.12 says that God is our rear guard. I don't know about you, but I find reassurance in remembering that someone as big as God is guarding my rear. That's right, God covers all those cheeks. Right, left, even rear. Come on, that was funny. Come on. <laughs> But what if it doesn't work? <laughs> what if they go ahead and hit your right cheek too, so to speak? What if God doesn't stop them? And they just keep right on hurting you? Well, I would say what I've already said. Jesus is not talking about an ongoing or continually repeated situation. Nor is he talking about anything that causes significant or lasting harm. We should take Jesus, not take Jesus, beyond his word here. And so there comes a point where you have to take action, not revenge, never revenge. But there is a time to take action to protect yourself and others from harm. There's a time to punch a bully in the nose. But when is it that time, you ask? Where is the line? Well, based on the boundaries of what Jesus says, I would say that if the aggression is truly damaging or if it is ongoing, the time for turning the other cheek is past. At which point we're, taking, we're talking about doing no more or less than what is necessary to defend oneself from further harm. You're not doing anything about what's happened already. You're just doing what you have to to keep from further Arm. Again, we do not need to go beyond what Jesus says. For example, a slap in the face is not the same as a gun in the face. Two different acts of aggression, two different responses. Jesus didn't say what he didn't say. Let's see, let's see what he says next. Verse 40. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If somebody wants your t-shirt, your favorite t-shirt, give them your cool little North Face rain jacket or your Carhartt as well. Go the extra mile if someone asks for too much. Historically, these were things that actually happened. People would sue one another for clothes 
because clothes were often the most valuable thing they had, like cars for us today. And Roman soldiers could force civilians to carry their gear for certain distances as well. Again, we must take these words at face value and not inflate them. Jesus does not say to let anyone sue you for anything at any price. He does not say to submit yourself to slavery or do anything anyone ever asks you to do, no matter what it is. Jesus says, if we're talking about your shirt, maybe just let them have it. If we're talking about walking a mile to keep from trouble with the government, just do it. For the sake of peace and because you have received the unconditional love of Christ in spite of yourself, and because this is probably the best and easiest way to solve the problem anyway, be the one to make the sacrifice and just let it go. Again, this kind of thinking flew in the face of the prideful Jewish leaders, the religious crowd of that day, who said, for instance, that a Jew should, should not allow himself to be pressed into service by any foreign king. They felt that as the chosen people of God, they should refuse such a thing as to carry an evil Roman soldier's gear. They might be participating in something. Anyone who would comply with such a thing should probably be rebuked by the religious community. Does any of this sound familiar? These religious leaders also had by far the best clothes. They didn't much like the idea of giving those clothes to peasants. As usual, Jesus turns the arguments of his time on, uh, upside down, saying, get over yourself, especially if you have a lot, and give up some of your stuff before you would go to court to keep it. Maybe even be ready to lay down some of your personal dignity or God-given rights to show people how it is with me. Jesus says, if you want to be seen as the people of God, then show the unconditional love of God by doing more than what is asked, not less. Now, how might we have applied this teaching over the last year, do you think? What if our government asks us to go the extra mile? Well, to be honest, they did. And to be honest, I did. And then some. Thankfully, I didn't lose my church over my submission. Now, have you ever been asked to go the extra mile by someone who didn't even show appreciation for the first mile? Have you ever had someone go after your stuff? There's a time to just give them what they want without a fight. Jesus says, but that's not all he says. Don't miss this. If you really want to experience the power of what Jesus is teaching, throw in something extra. Again, this is not passive. This is courageous and sacrificial. It can be effective, but only if you actually do it. There's a time to go, not just the first mile, which maybe was already ridiculous that they shouldn't have asked, but to go the extra mile, which they did not even ask for, you see. There's a time to throw in your jacket as a bonus, along with your shirt, even to the undeserving. Why? Because an act like this demonstrates God's unconditional love to a watching world. The reason we're left here, our mission, behaving with such grace, 
also brings a little bit more of God's kingdom into your heart, into your life, into your understanding, helps you understand God a little bit better. In short, taking steps like these help you grow up in Christ. What if we really began to treat others as God has treated us? Might be scandalous. But what if every Christ follower did that? That would be world-changing stuff right there, folks. That would maybe even be like bringing heaven to earth. God's kingdom is backwards, remember? Now, also remember what I said at first. We're talking about an extra mile or a jacket, not your very livelihood. And there's also a time not to continue enabling someone who will never be satisfied. Jesus does not say to let squatters live in your home. There's a time to say enough. Love does not empower someone else's laziness or enable their irresponsibility. Love does not become complicit with sin. Again, don't add to what Jesus says or try to apply it to every situation. In general, if someone is wrongfully trying to sue you into poverty, get a lawyer. Jesus was talking about everyday life and everyday situations like if a friend doesn't bring back a tool they borrowed or if someone takes a lot more than they give to your relationship or maybe a bit further like say if someone who's poor accidentally puts a dent in your car what if you just let it go? What if they ask you to let it go? (laughs) What if you let it go and send them a gift card in the mail on top of it? Sound crazy? Tell it to Jesus. See, Jesus knew that most of us err on the side of keeping what's ours and making sure we don't have to do any more work for somebody else than necessary. Instead, we should be looking for opportunities to show the unconditional love of Christ, which is, by the way, extravagant. More often than not, we should absorb the wrong done to us instead of grasping for what we think we deserve. I mentioned it once, but again, can you imagine a world where most Christians live this way? This is the kingdom Jesus called us to advance. Don't write this off. Don't ignore this teaching. I'd be willing to bet that every person in this room will have an opportunity to apply this teaching within the next few days. Don't forget the principle that's here. Even as I tell you, it doesn't mean enabling. Because if you mostly think about what it doesn't mean, you'll miss everything Jesus wanted you to learn today. You'll miss your opportunity to be an agent of the unconditional love of Christ if you don't hear these words and get yourself ready for the next opportunity. In fact, let me just pause at this point in the sermon and give you a take home. This is something for you to take with you. Here's a way to remember what we're learning today. Here it is. Maybe you want to write it down. Choosing the way of Christ means showing unconditional love to the undeserving. Choosing the way of Christ means showing unconditional love to the undeserving. Why? Because that is precisely the kind of love He shows to you. We say we follow Christ. How about if we actually start? What if you started treating others the way Jesus treats you? And I know this gets tough in real life, but Jesus isn't even done. (laughs) He continues saying, give to the one who asks you 
And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Uh Uh-oh. See, there's a way to live that is giving and generous and a way to live that is selfish and greedy. The heart of what Jesus is saying is that if you're in a position to help someone, by all means do it. And if they ask for help, well, that's even more the time to actually do it. So, you know, what if one of our church members tries to take advantage of this, starts going around and asking people for money all the time? Maybe even quoting this verse. Well, if your pastors hear about it and it seems excessive, we're going to ask them to stop. So let's just do good while there's an opportunity. Quit worrying about how it could potentially get out of hand. Sometimes we just need to stop being so careful. We can deal with abuses if and when they occur. In the meantime, what did Jesus say? Am I telling you to give indiscriminately? Absolutely not. Psalm 112.5 says the affairs of our charity should be guided with discretion. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul told us those who will not work should not eat. So there are some boundaries to this idea Jesus shares. But the principle is no less true that we should be ready to help and ready to give. To practice unconditional love as honored representatives of Christ. Going on. Jesus just kind of lets loose at this point. Sort of sums it all up in a flurry. From verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. The Jews, again had misinterpreted a couple of Old Testament passages, namely those in Psalm 139 and 140, where David had some harsh things to say about his enemies. They had taken those emotional reactions out of context, turned them into principles to live by for God's people. They actually began to say, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. If you can believe it, this was a known saying among Jews at the time of Jesus. Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. That's what they said. And so in this case, Jesus is not actually quoting a biblical law that they had misunderstood, but rather a saying that they had used to sum up what they thought was a biblical principle. Do you think that uh, we might have any sayings like that today that might need correction? Yeah. And just like them, we get it wrong sometimes. But in my opinion, this saying or principle may have been the single most harmful false teaching up to that point in history. This misunderstanding of what God would want led to the selfish, inward attitude of those who were known as His people in that time. This teaching, and even just this phrase about hating their enemies, had led them into an exclusivist attitude. An attitude completely contrary to God's intentions, God's mission for them, which was to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. God told Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through his descendants, not that all the nations would be hated by them. And yet the Jews of Jesus' day thought they were being godly in hating those who they considered to be God's enemies. They thought this was biblical. After all, didn't God hate their enemies? Those who treated them so poorly, were they not right to hate the enemies of God? By the way, the answer is no. They were not right. 
But they truly believed that God wanted them to love each other and hate the pagans, who they referred to as unclean or even dogs. That really is what they taught. And again, I believe this may have been the most harmful, false teaching in history up to that point. It really was kind of at the root of all that was wrong with the situation. The state of religion that day. What about today? What about now? What about us? Are there any teachings along this line in the church today? Are there any well-meaning pastors even who seem to say that the people in the world are basically to be hated? We must have no fellowship with them whatsoever, some say. And every time I teach on these issues, I'm accused of beating a straw man, as if nobody really says these things. But I assure you that there are those today who are teaching their churches and millions on the Internet that God hates those whom he did not choose. They say that God chooses both for and against with no conditions, not even faith, because they basically believe God forces the faith on those whom he chooses. They say, look, most of those people out there in the world have simply not been chosen. And therefore, they remain the enemies of God, destined for hell, objects of wrath, which must mean that God does not love them. He never has. He never will. They never had a chance. Now, to be clear, some who have what I would call extreme beliefs about God's choice still would say we are called to love those people anyway whether that's logical or not. But others really do see the unsaved world as people whom God hates. Invariably, some will tell me after the service that even though they are of a certain theological persuasion, they don't believe God hates unbelievers. And I say to you, I'm so glad that you're not wrong on this. Because nothing could be further from what God wants out of his people and nothing could be more counterproductive to the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is our primary calling as his followers, than to think God hates unbelievers. And let me tell you, this is not just a matter of saying, well, we don't know who is who, so we just have to love them all just in case. That's nonsense. You can't really love someone who you're pretty sure is probably not, well, you know, probably one of the people God hates, but maybe not, so we'll love them. You can't tell me or you can tell me, <laughs> as I've heard many times, you just need another systematic theology course. You can keep your theology if your theology believes in a God who does not love every single person on earth. God's love is an unconditional love. I do not believe his hatred is directed toward people, but toward their sin. Jesus made this clear in such places as John 3, 16, where he said that God loves all the people in the world. And so even though someone may be the enemy of God, and even though they may even be currently fighting against everything Jesus stands for, he still loves them. And he still wants them to come to the truth, even if he already knows that they won't. And he does know. He knows. And for the record, I believe that is essentially what is meant by the idea of God's choice. 
But this is precisely what's so amazing about the grace that Jesus was trying to communicate during his time on earth. He knows who will receive salvation and who won't. And yet, he loves all of us and them anyway. Listen, those of you who question this, do you really want to believe that the love of Christ is dependent upon our response? Does God only love those who he knows will eventually love him? No, his love is unconditional. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, God loved us. And if you're thinking about the wrath of God and the end of the road for those who do not repent and believe in Christ, that being the horrors of hell, you need to understand it's not what God wants for them. No, he loves them. God longs for everyone to receive his love by faith in Christ, and he's saddened to know that many won't. 1 Timothy 2.4, listen, God does not choose hell for people. They choose it for themselves. And they do so precisely by rejecting his love, so powerfully expressed by Christ on the cross. People choose hell by rejecting or ignoring the gift of forgiveness and salvation offered in Christ. They choose hell by rejecting or ignoring the obvious God of creation, and this is why they are without excuse, Romans 1. God is not willing that any would perish, 2 Peter 3, 9. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whosoever believes will not perish, but will have everlasting life, John 3, 16, which does not say that God loves whoever believed, but rather that whoever believed would be saved. Jesus said God loved them all, but that those who believed are the ones who would be saved. God loved all the people in the world, and Jesus Christ is the proof. He died once for all, offering his love to all, even while knowing that some would never receive it. This is unconditional love. And you see, our attitude is to be the same as Christ's. We're to live a life that is a reflection of God's unconditional love, even love toward those who are our enemies and who may even be God's enemies, as were we all at one point in our lives. We are to love them and we are to pray for them and to reach out to them. As we practice this unconditional love, we are acting as the true children of God. And we see, Jesus makes this all clear in verse 44, basically the thesis of the passage, love your enemies so that you'll be called the sons of God. We must love them, not just in case they don't stay our enemies, but because we belong to the one who loves all. And because he first loved us, even when we, in our unforgiven sin and depravity, were still the enemies of God. Jesus says anyone can love those who love them. Do you see it? What if Jesus only loved those who love him? That's not unconditional. He's not calling us to a love that he doesn't have himself. Jesus loved those who will never love him. He died for all. And we can love them too if we have the spirit of Christ in us. In him. We can love our enemies and God's enemies. But why? Because to love unconditionally is to advance the kingdom of God on earth. When you love your enemies and those who are hardest to love with the unconditional love of God, that is when you will know God is in you. And that is when you will be actively involved in bringing God's kingdom of heaven to earth. How do we expand the kingdom of heaven on earth? Learn to practice the unconditional love of God. In so doing, you will conquer hate 
because love is ultimately stronger. This is the message of Christ, and it is a message of unconditional love. But then, after all of these very challenging words, Jesus closes this section with a statement that falls like the stroke of a gavel at the end of a trial. Sound reverberates across the hills like the trumpet that will herald the joyous second coming of Christ to believers even while sealing the doom of all who have rejected or ignored Him. These words of Christ ring out with a coarse rigidity that cannot be watered down. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, snap. And I was really liking the love part too. Can we take a look at the historical context on this? Is there, is there a different nuance of meaning in the original Greek language that we could discover? Is it possible we're missing a word or two in our copies of Scripture? Maybe there should have been an almost or a sort of? No. Jesus continues to paint this picture of what God expects His people to be like. It's a very challenging picture. It doesn't get any more challenging than unconditional love. But if that's not enough, He wraps it all up with a call to be perfect. And so, I will keep reminding you of what Jesus is really trying to do with this sermon. He is presenting the pure, undimmed brilliance of God's glorious standard throughout these passages. And His intention is that we would realize that we cannot do it on our own. We cannot be good enough to please God by our own efforts. We must realize that we're desperate for His grace and His help. Remember, This whole sermon started with Jesus basically saying, blessed are the spiritual beggars. And why? Because only beggars beg. As the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote, the test of observance of Christ's teachings is our consciousness of our failure to attain an ideal perfection. The degree to which we draw near this perfection cannot be seen. All we can see is the extent of our deviation. And see, that perspective which Jesus is giving us leaves us gasping for grace. Right where Jesus wants us. Gasping for grace. These words were as shocking to his original audience as they are to us. If there had been mumbling and murmuring before, at this point there was dead silence. I bet the people could hear the cry of a seagull or two from the nearby Sea of Galilee. If crickets chirped on the Palestinian hillsides, they could hear them. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I wonder how long Jesus paused before he continued. You realize how scandalous this statement is? Only God is perfect. That's the one thing they all agreed upon. Sadducees, Pharisees, zealots, fishermen, shepherds, the women who were there. Maybe the only thing every single person agreed in that crowd about is that God is perfect. Only God is perfect. To them, Jesus essentially said, be 100% like God. Does that start to make anyone uncomfortable? How could he say that? And could he practice what he preached? Well, yes, he could, but then Jesus was God in the flesh, so that's no fair. But now he's saying, you too. What will pastor say to fix this? How will the preacher get out of this one? I won't. My friends, the incredible truth is that with God, it is actually possible to be perfect. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the only perfect man to ever live, we can be made perfectly clean and spotless before God. As born-again believers, our sin washed white. 
removed from us, our sentence served. And God, remembering our sin no more, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now he sees us as flawless, spotless, fully cleansed, perfect sons and daughters. The writer of Hebrews put it so wonderfully in chapter 10, verse 14, where he wrote, For by that one offering, Christ, he perfected forever all those whom he is making holy. Which could have just as easily been translated perfect. He perfected forever all those whom he is making perfect. What an awesome verse of scripture. It's this one sentence we see the great paradox of our salvation. While we're already perfected in God's sight for eternity, we are still being perfected during our remainder of our time in this temporal existence. In other words, our current status before God is washed, cleansed, forgiven, and perfected. And yet, for as long as we live on this earth, the reality of that fact must continually be worked out within the limits of these bodies. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 1 through or 12, work out your salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling. In another place, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, we who have faith in Christ are already perfect in eternal standing before God while we are being perfected until Christ returns to finish off his work by giving us new bodies made to last forever. I know that is really heavy. A lot of theology today. But we need to grapple with this. Because when you understand who you really are in Christ, perfectly forgiven, that has a great effect on how you actually live. If God sees you as perfect, even while he's perfecting you, will you not surrender to his work and become a partner in what he's doing? But again, what was Jesus mostly trying to get across to his audience that day on the hillside? Remember, this was before he paid the price for their sin. And so he was saying, you can't do this. Jesus was trying to get them ready for the cross. He was trying to help them see they needed his sacrifice, his gift, his salvation, his unconditional love, which, when received, makes us perfect before God. Jesus perfectly demonstrated unconditional love in making a way for us, even while we did not love him, when we were his enemies. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest expression of unconditional love that the world has ever seen. It's also the very thing God uses to make us perfect. He placed on him the sins of us all. And while we must first see our need for the salvation Jesus earned for us, we must also see our need to receive it. While the work was done on the cross... It is received by faith. And this is made clear throughout the Bible. I mentioned John 3.16. He died for all. But who will receive the benefit? Only those who believe. Believe in what? In Him. How is a person saved? By faith in the identity and work of Jesus Christ. Period. Have you ever placed your trust in Jesus and what he did to save you? He paid the price for your sin. He conquered death by rising again. Do you believe in him and what he did? Have you ever put your trust in Jesus and his sacrifice? It is your choice and no one can make it for you. Are you ready to make that choice today? If so, let me guide you 
in that decision. If you would all bow your heads in prayer with me. And if you're one who's never really done that, you've never said, yes, I need that. I believe it. I'm putting my faith, I'm putting my chips all in. I'm, I'm putting on the parachute that's Jesus and I'm jumping out the plane and believing I'm going to be okay. I today am putting my trust in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did on the cross. That he paid the price for my sin. That he rose again, showing he can beat death for me. That he can give me eternal life. I believe in Jesus I believe he died on the cross and rose again. I believe in that who he is and what he did. I need to receive that. I want to receive that gift today. You can just tell God, just say yes. It's not a magic prayer. It's a moment of decision, a response to what God is saying in your heart. It's probably not the first time he's knocked on the door. Will you put him off again? We don't know how much time we have. Won't you just say yes today? Only beggars beg. Would you be a spiritual beggar today? Would you say yes, I need that. I need Jesus. Save my life. Save me for eternity. Forgive me of my sin. Would you just turn to Jesus today? Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself, from all the ways you've thought of the idea that there's all these different ways you can get to heaven. Turn from all the junk and the lies and turn to the truth. His name is Jesus. Would you just turn to him today and say, I drop everything else. I'm putting it all in on you. Jesus Christ, you're my savior today. Come into my life. You don't have to say all those words you understand. It's just a moment of saying yes to Jesus and only Jesus. Yeah, it's today the day. If so, I hope that you will let me know so I can talk to you about next steps. You can just mark it on your response card if that's easiest. You could talk to me after the service or one of our pastors. You could email me. Please, if you made a decision today, let me know. Father, we're challenged today to live by this unconditional love that Jesus put forth. And it is not easy in our flesh but your word says that if we will walk in the spirit, we will not give in to the deeds of the flesh. Help us walk in you, aware of your presence, seeking your help. When we see these opportunities come, let us just immediately start praying that we can be a light, that we can be different, that we can be like Jesus. And it says, in his name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.